your announcement, why don't we pray? We're going to look into the Word tonight in Luke chapter 8. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll be there. So uh, looking forward to being able to share what God has in His Word through that. So let's pray. God, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the privilege that we're able to enjoy, to be able to study your word, to understand it. We thank you for uh, being in Christ and having the Holy Spirit allow us to welcome the word and to welcome its application, even when it can be convicting, even though it, it can be something that uh, we're uncomfortable with. God, I thank you for our time that we enjoyed this morning. I thank you for just being around your word. I thank you for uh, even, even the, the lack of comfort of it from the standpoint of it's just not normal, and it's just not what we're used to. And if anything, Lord, it's just preparing us for a greater reality in heaven. As Pastor Tim preached this morning, as we uh, look for the imminent appearing of the Lord, would that be today? Would that be this week? Lord God, we would eagerly uh, enjoy that that. Um, that opportunity to be with the Lord. But in the meantime, God, we thank you for your patience. We thank you for those who are continuing to hear the gospel and given the opportunity to, to turn and to, to, to repent and to be spared from the wrath that is to come. So God, may we be good stewards of that time that we have here on earth. Lord, also we pray for those who are, are continuing to battle, battle illness. Lord, I think of Mrs. Lawrence and I think of Marion Wallace. Think of Ron Major and, and these folks that are uh, just uh, fighting uh, their illnesses and, and doing it often in a, a very lonely uh, position, a lonely time. God, encourage them through the promises of your word. Encourage their families as well. May we be mindful of them and reach out to them uh, and, and to, at, at the very least, be keeping them in our prayers. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you again. We ask for clarity as we look at the Word. Lord, we ask for uh, the Bible uh, to speak for itself. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said before, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8, and um, we'll be looking actually at two different passages there in Luke 8, one at the very beginning of the, the chapter, but then one towards the middle of the chapter. Last week was Mother's Day, and Pastor Tim uh, preached uh, on uh, a classic Mother's Day sermon. He preached a, a sermon that, that spoke of the significance and the role of women in the church. Um, from the book of Mark, he talked about their faithful service, their genuine saving faith, and their severe devotion, a sincere devotion, I should say. Um, and, and so, as, as he mentioned, uh, during that time, uh, during ancient times, uh, there was a, a place for women, and it was not in the same place for men. Uh, it was uh, one of inferiority. Um, in fact, ancient history really just tended to ignore the contributions of women altogether. Uh, I don't believe that there would be many Mother's Day sermons at the time of Christ. Uh, women and their noteworthy achievements were almost always omitted from historical records. Now, when we look at the book of Luke, uh, one of the sub-themes that we see in the book of Luke is his attention to what society viewed as outcasts or uh, those who were of lesser status. And in particular, at this time, women were viewed in that way. In fact, of all the Gospels, Luke brings the most attention 
to women. He brings greater attention to women in ministry than really any other book in the New Testament and certainly any other gospel. And so in Luke chapters 8 and then even really at the tail end of 7, we read of several noteworthy women and their role in Christ's ministry. But more significantly, we see how Jesus viewed and treated these women. Now, I need to admit, this is going to be a longer introduction. Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be a longer sermon. But what I mean is I'm going to be building up a case for where I would think the Bible is taking us. And it's going to be more in the form of an introduction and laying the groundwork for our final point. So for our main point. So I, I want to bring our attention uh, in Luke chapter 8. We, we have this uh, account in the first three verses of, of women that ministered alongside Jesus. But as we see that account, we also need to be reminded of actually what Pastor Steve preached several weeks ago, and that was the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. It's that account in uh, verses 36 through 50 of chapter 7. So you have the end of chapter 7. This woman who comes in, anoints Jesus' feet, is crying, weeping, uh, washing uh, his feet with her hair, kissing his feet, very uh, intimate uh, expression of worship to be sure. And then you have in chapter 8 this introduction of more women involved in ministry. In fact, we see in verse 1, it says, Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. And then we'll be seeing uh, another story uh, or another account uh, in just a moment uh, about Jesus and his interaction with women. But, but as we look at Luke 7 and Luke 8, and as we look at the whole of Jesus' ministry, uh, one thing that we see is that Jesus understood the needs of the women in his ministry he, and how he treated these particular women. In chapter 7, we see how he treated the sinful woman. She was aware of who Christ was. Uh, as Pastor Steve preached, and I won't rehash, rehash his sermon, but she was a woman who was a spectator. She wasn't an invited guest. She was watching what was going on. Which This was typical, where rabbis would have guests into their home and people would come and sit, really, on the outside and listen to their conversation. Yet this woman understood who Christ was, that he was more than just a rabbi, that he was one who... When she looked at him, she saw one who was holy. And she was aware of who Christ was, but she was also aware of who she was. She was unworthy of Christ's company. She was an uninvited guest. And so as she was in his presence, she was weeping over the sorrow of her, of, of her actions. She was known as a sinner. And in fact, this rabbi, this, this Pharisee, looked at her and, and wondered why in the world that Jesus would even tolerate her being in their presence. And so Jesus used that as a teaching opportunity for this particular religious leader, one who should have known better, to be sure, but understanding that all men and women are in need of forgiveness and that she was greatly sorrowful. Uh, she had great sorrow, and as a result, 
she recognizes her great need of forgiveness. And at the end of that account, uh, Jesus says that you have been forgiven. And those who were there recognized that not anybody could just forgive sins. That this was something that was special. You know, who does he think he is, as it were, to forgive sins? Yet Christ knew that this is what she needed the most. This woman who came crying, this, this woman who was, was really pouring herself out at the feet of Jesus. Jesus handled her with love, with tenderness, and granted her her greatest need, forgiveness. He knew how he should treat the sinful woman. He also understood the needs of these other women that had physical and spiritual illnesses. As we read there in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Now, contrary to society and what was going on at that time, Jesus didn't give his full attention, his exclusive attention, I should say, to just men. No, when we see him performing healings, when we see him casting out evil spirits, it was something that he did for both men and women. And really, when he performed these miracles, what was the point? Well, the point was to authenticate him as a messenger, as a true messenger. It was one where he could do this action and validate the claims of who he was with the goal of these people following him. Now, not every person who he healed followed him. In fact, I think there's a case to be made that the minority of those who Jesus healed actually followed after him. Where we read of him healing everyone who was present. Where we uh, read of him feeding thousands upon thousands. Where people with infirmities were brought from, from far away. And Jesus would heal them. And yet we see these women who were healed actually doing what he wanted their response to be. Which was following him. So Jesus understood the needs of women in his ministry. And also by way of introduction, it's important to note that Jesus was not threatened by having women in his ministry. He wasn't threatened by having them in his ministry. He invited and welcomed them to freely associate with him. During this time, rabbis would often have proselytes. They would have um, um, followers, disciples, as it were. And rarely, if ever, did rabbis have female disciples. Yet, as Jesus went from town to town, preaching, performing miracles, it wasn't uncommon for both men and women to be following after him. And it says here in verse 3 that these were women who supported him out of their own means. Now, you had a woman who was a wife of another man. It says here that you had uh, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward. You had um, his uh, other close friends. Uh, in other passages that we see, we see Mary and Martha being two very close friends of, of, of Jesus. We have Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, who later on um, performs an action very similar to the Mary of, of, um, of chapter 7, where she broke this vial of ointment and anointed Jesus uh, on his head. It was a, a separate event altogether than, than what we read in Luke chapter 7. But you had these women 
doing these very um, countercultural things. And Jesus was not threatened by them. In fact, he invited them and freely welcomed them to associate with him. He himself even being a single man. His gospel was identified and even validated by them. You see, you have to remember that uh, this, you know, this gospel of Luke was written in the first century. And in the first century, to include women as part of the narrative was really not done, um, as we mentioned before. But as we look at Luke and as we look at the other gospels, we see a prominent role of the women as messengers of the gospel. So, for example, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, who, when spoken to by Jesus, and having seen him for who he was, went and shared that message with the other people there in Samaria. And they, in turn, came and heard the gospel. You see women being some of the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. The most fundamental, I would say, one of the most essential moments in Christian history, the resurrection. And who were the eyewitnesses? They were women. From a historical standpoint, that would make no sense whatsoever. They wouldn't be considered credible. And yet Jesus incorporated their testimony into the gospel narrative. Why? Because he valued them. He wasn't threatened by them. And as we see here, both in Luke 7 and then elsewhere, he did not discourage them worshiping him. And if I can put it this way, he did not discourage intimate forms of worship. As I said before, the sinning woman who washed his feet with her tears. And as I mentioned before in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus was anointed with oil by, by Mary Magdalene. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, he was anointed by oil. And then Mary, who wiped his feet with her hair in John chapter 12. So there were three, at least three different instances where you have women effusively showing their affection for Jesus in what we would consider to be intimate ways. And Jesus didn't discourage that. They were worshiping him. Now, I need to take a moment here at this time to acknowledge that the fall has certainly distorted the way that we look at events like that. Um, in fact, if I can make a broader statement, the fall has distorted the way that we look at just sex and sexuality, period. What do I mean? Well, it's kind of hard to think about you know, the context of, of something like that happening, where Jesus is there and all of a sudden a woman is, is you know, showing her emotion and kissing his feet in a public way, uh, in, in, a, in a public fashion, I should say, and, and how all of these things are taking place, pouring oil on his head and, and washing his feet with their hair. And, and you know, we kind of struggle to wrap our brains around the appropriateness of this. Now, in a historical context, being removed 2,000 years, we can read it, and then we can be able to understand this is Jesus. But being in that moment, I mean, if you're the disciples sitting there watching this, in that moment, you're probably wrestling internally with the impact, if we could put it this way, the impact of the fall, of thinking, is this okay? Like, um, awkward? You know, 
one of the immediate, in fact, I would say the first impact of the fall was the impact of shame and embarrassment and awkwardness that accompanies this really just sexuality in general. When Adam and Eve first sinned in Genesis 3, what was the first thing they recognized? It was the fact that they were naked. Now think about that. It's not as if any new characters were entered into the narrative here. I mean, it was them and the garden animals. And it's not like they hadn't seen each other, and it's not like the animals cared. So Adam and Eve, their eyes were opened to their nakedness, and that was something that brought about shame. The fall directly impacted even how they viewed their own bodies, and it's because of the effects of sin. And the same awkwardness often accompanies acts of intimacy. You know, as I was thinking, uh, if I were one of these disciples watching, one of the disciples watching this happening to Jesus, I don't know that I would have been able to make eye contact with him. You know, as he's having oil poured on his head, or as he's having this woman, a known sinner, kissing his feet. I don't know if I could have watched that. I mean, just making eye contact. But you know what? Jesus wouldn't have been embarrassed. Jesus would not have had any shame. But we have a hard time wrestling with that. What was being done was perfectly appropriate, but that's Jesus, and this is us. So we have to acknowledge that the fall has distorted the way that we look at things. We also have to acknowledge that in this same vein, the fall has resulted in a hypersexualized way of approaching one another. What do I mean by that? Well, I want to kind of I want to take us out of the first century and put us into the twentieth century, and maybe, you know, just looking at at at, at the at the times now, you know, when a man or a woman express kindness and spiritual affection to another person, perhaps a person of the opposite sex, you know, there's normally a, a level of appropriateness, at least there should be, of of how that's gone about, and if those steps aren't taken, then a lot of times the motives for those spiritual acts of kindness or affection uh, can be called into question. Meaning, why did that person do that? What were they thinking? You know, what's going through their brain? And, and, and unfortunately, um, we read stories and we're familiar with people in ministry who have taken those steps too far and have fallen into sexual sin. But just at its, at, uh, just at looking at genuine kindness, genuine love for one another. A lot of times motives can be called into question. Many times uh, we make less and less room for non-sexual relationships or friendships that we bought into the idea that somehow men and women can't have close friendships because, uh, as one writer put it, sex gets in the way. And, and Unfortunately, that strain of thinking can creep into the church as well, to where you have a strict compartmentalization of men with men and women with women, um, to where sometimes even a person's looks and their appearance can be not a blessing, but a threat, where another person's beauty becomes a threat instead of a blessing that perhaps God has seen fit to, to allow them to have. We can constantly compare ourselves with the people around us based on the way that they look. 
We can assign value to ourselves simply because they are the fittest or they are the best looking person. And we can demote our own standing because we don't look that way. Why? Because part of the impact of the fall is hypersexualizing the other sex. Sometimes this is by choice, sometimes it just happens. And as we see what Jesus did in, in his behavior with um, the sinning woman, and as we see him, a single man, having women following him, we can't just simply say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, this, for us, we're not Jesus. So what is the solution here? How do we then look at the value of what Jesus is doing in the example of what he's setting in the context of the body of believers and yet still be able to acknowledge the impact of the fall and live wisely? Well, I think the answer and really the point of what I'm trying to share with you is found later in verse or later in chapter 8. It's in verse 19. It's in verse 19. It says this. And Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But Jesus answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. There's parallel passages in the New Testament to this. One is in Matthew, the other in Mark, Matthew 12, and then Mark 3. And in both of those passages, Jesus says that um, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And he actually even uses the word sisters as well. So he's talking about a spiritual reality here. It's understandable in this, in this story that Jesus' mom and siblings would want to see him. But it's important that we understand what Jesus' motives are. Jesus here is not demoting his mom. He's not demoting his brothers. Rather, he is promoting his followers, those disciples, to the status of family. So what? Well, really, this is the point. The point is this, that if you are in Christ, you've been adopted into God's family, and your identity as sons and daughters of God should cause you to see each other as brothers and sisters. This is how we resolve this tension of the role of the body of Christ, men and women together, and yet the impact of the fall how do we somehow bring those together? And I think that what Jesus is doing in verse 21 is he's saying there is a spiritual reality that you must hold to, that you must calibrate yourself to, and that is this. Your fellow members of the body of Christ, those fellow disciples, they have been adopted into the same family as you have. You are children of God. You are sons and daughters of God. As a result, you are brother and sister in Christ. Paul does a, a wonderful job, I think, of explaining the practical reality of this in, in everyday life. If you would, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to read starting in verse 3. 
says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren... You have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it towards all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel more and more. In verses 3 through 8, Paul makes a clear command to these Thessalonian believers to refrain from sexual immorality and to live a holy life that pleases God, not to defraud one another in a sexual way. But yet in verses 9 and 10, he commends them for their love for one another, and he encourages them to increase in that love. In fact, when you see that word brethren, um, the Greek root for that word brethren is used over a hundred times by Paul. And that word translated brethren is in reference to the spiritual reality we experience as Christians. In fact, if you have a different translation, it may say brothers and sisters. Brethren was not simply instruction for the men in the congregation there at Thessalonica. No, it was for the men and the women. And what Paul was saying was, abstain from sexual immorality. Don't defraud one another in that way. Yet, you have a pattern of loving one another. Keep doing that. In fact, excel more and more. Why? Because you are brethren. You're brothers and sisters in one family. So practically, what does this look like? And with this, I finish. I'm really just going to give you two different points of application here. One is going to be stated in the negative, and the other is going to be stated in the positive. One, uh, the first that's going to be stated in the negative isn't a, a thought that's original to me, but it's uh, from a particular author, and it's this. Practically applying what we're looking at today. First of all, avoidance is not purity. Avoidance is not purity. You know, there are times where we are told to resist the devil, right? James chapter 4 and verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But there are also other times where we are told to flee. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, flee sexual immorality. Where we don't stand and try to resist. We don't stay in that place. We flee it. We get away from it. In fact... Proverbs chapter 7 is an explicit account of the dangers of not fleeing when you should, of being where you shouldn't be at the wrong time. But let me say this. There is a world of difference between a Proverbs 7 person and your brother and sister in Christ. A world of difference. And unfortunately, we can act in the same way when we interact with our church family. Avoidance. And we put on that action the stamp of purity. 
you should think about your brother and sister in Christ differently. That is your responsibility. That is whatever things are true. You might say, how can I do that? Especially when I'm faced with temptation. Well, I think there's a grid that would be helpful for you to think through when you're confronted with this temptation or you're confronted with um, just the, the opportunities to think of your brothers and sisters in Christ in, in an unbiblical way. There's a grid that I would I encourage you to think through. First of all, that is a person made in God's image. I say that because whoever it is that you're thinking about in this unbiblical, inappropriate way, that is a person made in God's image. They are more than just a body or body parts that you can objectify. You know, this really puts beauty in its proper perspective because, as Proverbs 31 says, it's a fleeting thing. You know, beauty is a, a, a gift from God, and it's one that we enjoy in nature. It's one that we enjoy in one another, even physical beauty. And so, that being said, it's a fleeting thing. And it's not something that is designed for us to simply be consumers as if we're eating a fruit, a piece of fruit, and throwing away the peels. No. God has called us to think rightly about that individual. And that is more than just a sum total of body parts that you find pleasing to yourself. That is a person. Second way of thinking, that is a person, that person is a soul that will spend somewhere forever. That person that you're tempted about is a person that is a soul that is going to spend somewhere forever. Does the way that you think about them cause them to be glorifying to God or selfishly consumed by you? That is a soul that's going to spend somewhere forever. Thirdly, that person is someone's son or daughter. That person grew up having a childhood. They have memories. They have favorite toys they like to play with. They have embarrassing moments from second grade. They are more than just something for you to consume. There's someone's son or daughter. You know, when I look at my kids, if, you, if God has blessed you with children, as you look at your children, you look at them in a way that, that they are precious to you. And someone else who you may be thinking of in an appropriate way, in an inappropriate way, I should say, that's someone's son or daughter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about not defrauding another brother. We shouldn't defraud another set of parents, just like we wouldn't, if you're a parent, want to be defrauded. So that person is made in God's image. That person is a soul that will spend somewhere forever. That person is someone's son or daughter. Fourthly, that person does not belong to me. They are someone's spouse, perhaps. They are someone's future spouse, perhaps. Or they are set apart for service to God as a single person. Regardless, that's not mine. Thou shalt not steal. Okay? So if you find a person beautiful, 
and they aren't your spouse, doesn't mean that you should not think them beautiful. It just means that's not your beauty to consume. Why not give thanks for their spouse? Why not give thanks that God has so designed them to be able to live in a certain way that brings him glory with their beauty? No. That person does not belong to me. And then finally, and really the point of this, that person is my brother and sister in Christ. And if they're an unbeliever, that person is a potential brother and sister in Christ. So I'm called to love them. I'm called to love them. That's my brother or sister. Why would I think in an inappropriate, consuming, selfish way about my brother or my sister? And yet Jesus is saying, he who does my will, who is my follower, they are my mother and my brother and sisters. It's a promotion of a, a spiritual reality. Those spiritual realities must govern the way that we look at one another in the body of Christ, which leads me really to my second point of application. Avoidance is not purity. That's our first point of application. We're not called to avoid a brother and sister in Christ. We are called to flee temptation, but we're not called to avoid our brothers and sisters in Christ. The second point that I'd like to make is, or the second point of application, is that we need to remind ourselves, you should remind yourself of the one another responsibilities. What do I mean by that? Well, in the New Testament, specifically uh, in, in Paul's gospel, or Paul's writings, there are almost 60 one another references in the New Testament. There's love one another, accept one another, be at peace with one another, teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, welcome one another, don't complain about one another, don't bite and devour one another, don't envy one another. Now, there's wisdom, and we see this even in Jesus' behavior, to be with each other in groups, men and women together with one another. Now, Jesus was never reckless, and nor should we. I'm not saying that we somehow flaunt this spiritual relationship and we become reckless with our behavior. We should make sure that we are behaving and living in a way that would not give anyone any reason to believe anything unseemly about our behavior with perhaps a, a brother or sister in Christ. Notice that when these intimate acts of worship were done with Jesus, they were always in public. They were always in public. There were people watching it. So there was nothing that could be called into question. And when we're called to have these one another responsibilities, there's, there's the sense of natural gathering with other saints, men and women with men and women. You know, as pastors and elders, we seek to minister equally to all of you and to confer value to all of you because all of you are equally valuable in God's sight. You know, sometimes for the sake of wanting to maintain purity, sometimes steps can be taken that, that communicate perhaps the opposite of this statement of value. For example, uh, I know of, of churches where pastors will never have uh, someone of the opposite sex, uh, 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 they'll never have a woman in their office ever. I know of uh, churches where there's uh, a pastor, the pastor will not initiate even a handshake with a woman. Even if it's a husband and wife together, shake the husband's hand, not shake the wife's hand. At which point, well, 
the efforts are noble to try to be above reproach. There can be an overstep to where value or perhaps lack of value can be communicated. Can I tell you that it's a blessing to see the fellow pastors in the offices meeting with both men and women in appropriate ways, making sure that there is mutual accountability, making sure that if there was a woman who had a need and needed to meet with one of the male pastors, that the doors were going to be wide open, that there would be someone there with them if need be, that the context would always be above reproach. Why? Because those women have the same value of ministry as any man does. And finally, I, I just as a, a part of reminding ourselves of the one another responsibilities, and I, I want to make a specific application here, and, and this is one where you know, I was kind of wrestling in my mind, um, you know, can you point to this uh, chapter and verse, and, and I think it's just a greater part of wisdom, but I want to especially talk to the fathers of sons in our congregation and just address this. I, I want to encourage fathers to teach their sons how to be friends with girls, how to interact with them on a friend status, a friend way. You know, we are good at telling our children what not to do. I'm good at that. Here's the rule, obey it, don't do this. You're with boys, haha, <laughs> don't do this, don't do those, those are easy. But can I tell you, as parents, if, if, you're, if you're a father and you have sons, I'd really just like to encourage you to work hard, and this is going to be hard work for some, to work hard at being able to instruct your sons on just how to be friends with the other sex. You know, today's boys, if they're left to themselves, their peers and their smartphones will tell them how they should interact with, the, with, with girls. Clearly, that's not the ideal. But we can start by talking with our sons about the power of words and how sometimes the things that we say can be remembered for a long, long time. We can talk about the value of appreciation, about how by loving someone and showing care and kindness to them is showing care and kindness for what they love, by showing appreciation for what they value. Even just talking about the mistakes that you have made in trying to befriend your wife. Trying to relate to her. You know, the Bible tells us that men, that the husbands are supposed to dwell with their wives according to knowledge, right? That there's one person on the face of the planet that husbands are supposed to know really, really well. And that's their wife. Dads, talk to your sons about this. And when we talk with our sons, it doesn't have to be, hey, did you see that girl? She's cute. Or wow, I noticed you two are talking. Is that something? It doesn't have to take a sexual bent. And when I say sexual, I'm not talking about inappropriate sexual. It doesn't have to talk about a romantic relationship bent. What about just what they care about? Or what they're interested in? Being able to talk about things, again, like words and appreciation and, and how they're working things out just like you're working things out. We should encourage our sons to have friends that are girls. And we can talk about our own friends that we have that aren't the same sex as us. 
So we can talk about the men and women in our church that have been a personal blessing to us as friends. Yes, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. But as we read in Romans chapter 7, when we're told not to do something, there's something that happens within our sin nature. Our sin nature gets excited. Like Romans chapter 7 talks about how I wouldn't have, Paul says, I wouldn't have learned the power of coveting had I not been told thou shalt not covet. And when I was told that, there's this sin nature in me that excites at the prospect of now coveting and imagining ways of all of this, you know, sin taking place. In the same way, when we're telling, when we're instructing, when, when, when the sum total of our instruction for our sons or for our children is don't, 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 don't. We shouldn't be surprised when at the same time their sin natures start churning with all the ways they're going to do, 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 do. And not the good things that they'll do. Let's provide something better. The spiritual reality of our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, praise God that he has arranged his family the way that he has. And praise God that though there may be differences in biology, there's differences in roles, even differences in how men and women think. There, are, there is always equality in value. In God's eyes, there may be differences in roles, but there's always equal value. Men and women. Jesus and Paul, both single men, modeled appropriate love for the women that were part of their ministry. And we see here that God uses all of his children, all of his children, when he accomplishes his plan. And we have to ask ourselves, and you need to ask yourself, does that way, does the way that you live, the way that you think, does it really reflect that? If I can be more specific, does the way that you approach your brothers and sisters in Christ, does it sever off half of them for fear of wanting to maintain a level of purity by avoiding? Or does it perhaps approach them from a consumer mindset where there's value in beauty, there's value in their looks, there's value in, in whatever it is that scratches your itch? We eagerly anticipate the day when our sin natures will be in the rearview mirror. But until then, it is incumbent on every saint to think rightly, to maintain personal responsibility with God so that they will approach their spiritual family in a loving way, increasing all the more, and in a godly fashion so that we're distinct from the world around us. We cannot absorb worldly thoughts, worldly ideas of how men and women are to interact with one another. No, the Bible, Jesus, shows us the way. Let's work hard at this way. Let's work with one another and build up one another, encouraging one another to grow in this treatment of one another. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. Or this is a, a particularly relevant topic because, Lord, we have so many, uh, so many opportunities to uh, be confronted with all of the wrong ways to think about 
our brothers and sisters. Lord, we are in a society that is saturated with pornography. It's saturated with objectification. It's saturated with, um, if it feels good, do it. It's saturated, Lord God, with dulling the consequences of all of the things I just mentioned. And God, we can look at that as Christians and, and we can really have a, a skewed way of looking at one another, viewing each other as more threatening than, than instead as a, a member of the body of Christ, one put there by you to edify and build up one another. God, change me, change us, starting with each one of ourselves, what we think, what we believe. Lord, we can't be like Jesus from the standpoint of being without a sin nature. And you haven't called us, Lord, to have the same exact interactions as Jesus had. But God, you have called us to be holy and you've called us to increase in love. Help us to manage that balance. Help us to be above reproach. Lord, protect our congregation. Protect us from situations that might be compromising. Protect us, Lord, from accusations. Would we see the evil afar off and prevent and avoid? God, we thank you so much for the protection you have given already. So we love you. We trust in you. In Jesus' name.